Today's interview is brought to you by our friends at Public. You'll be hearing more about them later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Hari Krishnan, Head of Volatility Strategies at SCT Capital Management. Hari, great to see you. Happy holidays. I think of you as a quant doing a lot of work in volatility, as your title would suggest. But I understand you're doing, you've done a lot of recent work on commodities, physical commodities, that is really struck your interest. So how did you get into this physical commodity strategy? Well, it's great to, it's great to be on your show, Jack. And I actually have a joke that I'd like to start with, which is that I remember I went many years ago, I watched Dodgeball. And there was this guy who thought he was a pirate. I'm the guy who thinks he's a farmer. I'm not legit. I'm trying to pretend to be, but there are lots of great parallels between hedging or long volatility and commodities investing that I became aware of in the past year or two. And it's really piqued my interest. And I can give you the long version, but basically I had a client who believed that commodities would go into a bull super cycle. And there've been lots of stories about this and you can... There are lots of prominent research groups like Goering and Rosenzweig and so mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. who've talked about this, who probably you know very well. And there are lots of reasons for it. But the question that we had was, is it possible to engineer a solution whereby we could find depressed commodities that had fundamental drivers and warehouse them in the way that a physical commodity producer would, waiting for the price to go up, selling into the market, but not paying too much to carry the position over time. And so that got me going. And it's very much a similar problem to hedging, where the goal is to provide as much protection as you can in a down market while minimizing or managing carry costs effectively. So a hedger, the what you basically want to do as a hedger is you want to reduce the timing risk that the investor has, that the end allocator or investor has, where the hedge doesn't have to be timed perfectly and the only way you can do that is by managing the bleed over time. I mean, people have seen stuff like the VXX ETF, ETN, or on the retail side, where the contango in the forward curve is so severe that the thing basically bleeds 5% a month. And the same thing is true in commodities. If a commodity is very depressed, like natural gas or wheat or corn currently are, what you'll find is that the forward curve is very steep. So if I want to deliver a long solution to a client and I have to roll five times a year, it's going to cost a significant amount to do so. And nothing is more similar than natural gas and the VIX in my view, but I can expand upon that as we go on because I've already presented quite a bit in a short period of time. Yes. Okay. So I, for many, investing in commodities can be somewhat of a traumatic experience. So you either want to hedge, in other words, your you know, and you're an oil producer and you want to head, so you short oil. So either by shorting the futures or by selling calls and buying puts, doing some sort of collar trade, you know, way, way over my head, some combination thereof, or yeah. you're a speculator, you have a directional view. You, you know, you listen to a podcast where some guy said there's not enough copper in the world and suddenly you're, you're a huge copper yeah. bull and yep. so you buy copper options uh, or copper future. You, you, you know, you, you're not going to load up in your garage on copper so you have to buy contracts in the future for to, to be to be delivered copy. In in the same way, volatility, the VIX, you can't actually own the spot VIX. You actually can own physical copper, but it's just unwieldy for 99.999% of people listening. So you have to do the futures route, and that you have to pay the bleed of uh, oh, 
you know, the, I'm just talking the VIX. The VIX now is at 12, but uh, for December 2024, it's at 19. So you have to buy it at 19, even though it's at 12 now. And every single day, it doesn't go to 19. You're being bled. Uh, so that's that's very well said. Yeah, exactly. And the same same problem is there in commodities. So I mean, the first port of call was to try and figure out what alternatives are available. Now you can buy commodity stocks and just go into the stock market and buy the big grain companies, big energies, and so on. But that troubled me a bit because what you get is not a pure commodities bet. You're getting a stock a stock index S and P beta plus generally speaking, a diversified business that doesn't really express a view that you might have in a specific commodity. Now, there are certain commodities that are out there, commodity ETFs, I should say, that do hold the physical. Sprott has a uranium one, and I think they Mm -hmm. have a gold one and maybe one or two others. GLD has some physical ownership last time I checked. But these are very narrow areas. There's no ETF that holds corn. I mean, corn degrades over time. It takes a lot of space to hold it. So you really are back in the situation which you mentioned, which is trying to replicate the performance of spot or physical corn using rolling futures. And the really interesting thing about this is that there are lots of good reasons to be bullish long-term for commodities. The reasons, and I I can go into as much depth as you like, but there are things Mm -hmm. like weather volatility, which has increased in certain areas such as in Brazil. There is food security slash food nationalization, which is an attempt to decrease reliance on other countries for the raw materials necessary to keep your economy going. There's the Green Revolution, which requires a lot of metals and things. You can go down the list. They're changing demographics in China and so on, where people eat different types of food. All of these factors are long-term bullish for commodities. And although I don't like to talk about ratios, that's more a kind of a more qualitative macro approach. Uh, The ratio of commodity prices to the S&P, say, or commodity prices to S&P multiples is very, very low currently. Yes. Okay. But, but Hari, as someone who is a verified quant and could, you know, draw circles around me and, and draw, you know, risk reward paradigms that look like Bat- Batman for, for option mm-hmm. structures, the ratio of an, a commodity basket to S&P 500 and, you know, it's gone down. So commodities are cheap for, you know, relative to 1980, like so- stocks make money, whereas just a pile of corn you know, it's not going, it makes sense that, you know, Apple has gone up more than a pile of corn. Absolutely. I think corn has gone up 2% annualized over the past century, whereas the S&P has gone up far more than that. Bonds have gone up far more than that. There's no doubt about it. The uh, commodity prices are, are in a tug of war between improvements in technology, which should lower prices mm-hmm. because they improve yields and so on and so forth. But at some point, there is a limit where if prices stay low for a long period of time, investment in commodities tends to drop under investment. And it takes, I don't know, 10 years to build a copper mine and get it operational. And the lag between the decision to invest and actual investment is long in pretty much everything. It's shorter than perhaps in copper, but it can be very long. And so even if you don't believe that commodities prices will be materially higher in 60 years, that's another debate. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we are at a point where investment in a lot of physical commodities is low, and that does tend to lead to kind of long horizon cycles. And what is the 
supply and demand, or when the, the price spikes of something, demand for it at that price goes down, or demand for it because it's more expensive, and the uh, mm-hmm. supply will increase because you know farmers will produce more of it. For example, when natural gas spiked a, a, a you know bazillion percent, and that's a you know mathematical term as as you know, people producers they started making a lot of producing a lot of natural gas, and this whole narrative of oh we're going to be you know paying down our debt and returning capital to shareholders that that was just a story and it was revealed as just a nice story um mm-hmm. like you know at what price of corn does do, does does it stimulate investment and i believe you know with the russia's invasion of ukraine in early 2022 there was a quite a severe spike in in corn and other soft agricultural products like how does that imp- are, did you see an increase in investment in corn where people buy more acres, planting more seeds, or is it not as, as linear of a relationship? One of my goals in all of this has been to put my head or to put myself in the mind mindset of a farmer, of a producer, let's say. Let's restrict ourselves to grains for now. I mean, there are lots of decisions that these farmers actually have to make. There is substitution of one crop for another. There is the decision to store or take everything out of the bin and have it hauled to an elevator nearby. There are all of these different decisions that farmers have to make to stay operational. And you're right that there are factors that keep lower than it otherwise would be based on the decisions that can be made. I can't deny that. What I would say in in my defense here, though, is that when prices are low, and I've done a lot of statistical analysis on this, the skewness of returns is heavily favored to the upside. So if you forget about futures for a moment, if corn is at $3, the probability of an upside mega surprise is far higher than the probability of an equally sized downside move. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is that if someone needs a commodity, and in energies, this is particularly notable, and there's no supply available or minimal supply available, the price could theoretically vector toward infinity because that marginal increment of demand is not being met by supply. And these prices do tend to be set at the margins, which is why you see a lot of fat-tailed events in commodities all the time. I don't need to buy uh, Microsoft if I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I feel the pressure to if I'm a long-only money manager who likes value. Some people need to buy Microsoft because <laughs> it's going up. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a terrible example. But there's no, there's no, I don't need to buy any given stock you know, equity at a given point in time. Whereas if I'm running a business, I need the raw materials to be available for me to keep going. And so that leads to a spikiness that doesn't exist elsewhere. And one of the stories I like to tell is the story of the forgotten asset, which is when supply is abundant in a given market, let's take wheat or any market really, prices tend to be low. Investors stop thinking about the market. Volatility drops off a cliff or at least is moderated. And so really what you've got is something where all the risk is to the upside. Now, if there is a spike, once there is a spike, then things change because the risk is now two-sided. But one of the goals in this kind of buying depressed commodities story was saga was the desire to take advantage of upside convexity in the same way that I try and mine downside risk in things like the S&P. A big part of that is trying to identify what non-volatility specialists tend to do in various markets. And so my, the solution that I will describe, which I should 
name a few people who've been instrumental in this. Mark Roberts and I have been collaborating on this project for a long time, and we plan to continue to. And I'd also like to mention Felix Euler, who is a well-known commodities trader who has built a, some excellent backtesting engines for the options markets on various commodities where it's very hard to get data and it's very hard to build a surface. But having said that, what I tried to do was to figure out what options were persistently overpriced and then come up with good reasons, good economic reasons why that may be the case. So what I didn't do was a giant machine learning exercise where I said things like, well, here's the commitment of traders report for various markets. Let's see where the real economic hedges are and so on and so forth, and then try and back out some information. Instead, I tried to figure out which options tend to be persistently over or underpriced. And, and then, and and then it, figure out sorry, why. An option that's statistically under or overpriced, does that mean mm -hmm. an option that, in retrospect, goes up and is, is a profitable option? Or does that mean an option that has an input of, of implied volatility that is lower than the average and also, are those the same thing? Can there be a cheap option that loses money and expensive ones that make money? Great stuff. Oh, there, there's a lot of questions in that already. Well, there, as you pointed out, as you alluded to, there are multiple ways to think about this. One is if you took a bunch of options you, and you did some smoothing, some quantity stuff, you could come up with an estimate of what the market thinks the forward distribution of returns is. It's not exact, but you can, you can do that if you do some math. And you can then compare it with what you think the true distribution is, or at the most basic level with the historical distribution. And so if the market is overpricing the odds of a 20% up move in a given commodity, you can show that in two ways. One is by building a distribution of forward returns based on the options markets. The other way is just to backtest different strategies. So I could say, if I took the 20% out of the money call option on market X, and rolled that option every month, how would I do? And when would I do well and when would I do badly? And so that was the starting point. I viewed every delta option with standard maturities as a different strategy and tried to figure out what the worst ones were. And then from there, try and infer why that may be the case. Why are people overbuying those options? Or conversely, when an option is fairly priced, why isn't there much demand for it? And I can break that down for you a little bit. I, I don't want to be too grains focused today, even though I'm, I've got the, got the outfit on, but I'll use corn as an example, because I don't want to give away everything, but I do want to say enough that people will understand why this is such an interesting problem in my view. So in, in, if you take a market like corn, there are farmers and there are end users End users are food processors, mega food companies, and so on. So the general mills is of the world. Now, a farmer is more directly affected by prices. That's their bottom line, basically. An end user is less directly affected, although they are, because they can pass on some of the costs to consumers. They can put less in the bag or in the box, but they also have a diversified business, typically. So their yeah, goal the is cost to structure isn't just the price of corn, whereas the revenue structure of a farmer is pretty much the price of corn. Exactly. So farmers tend to sell futures often against their crop. That's a way for them to lock in the price. There are numerous marketing strategies. I'm just giving you one. So what you find is if you look at the open interest in the futures markets, hedgers, which include the end users and the farmers, are typically short because the end user doesn't have as much need to hedge one-to-one -one the price. So if corn goes up from 475 to 480 a bushel, 
$4.80 bushel. That doesn't hurt the, the end user that much. So why would they be short, though? They, they, they might not be super long, but why would they be short? Well, what I'm, what I'm looking at when I look at the commitment of traders reports is the sum of what the end users and the producers are doing. Oh, okay. So the producers are getting pretty short, and the end users are getting less, less long. So the net effect is that there's an excess that needs to be absorbed by someone else. So someone else is some other entity or some other category is absorbing that excess. And these, this is all available in the disaggregated reports that, the, that are contained in the COT. Now, on the option side, it's very different because a farmer, you'd think a farmer would be short out of the money call options, which pay out if the price goes up. So a call option pays out if the price goes up. So you think a farmer would sell that to get some income for their business. But there's a reason why farmers would do the reverse as well. If they need cash, which they often do to run their business, they might be better off selling their crop. So taking the grain out of the bin and selling it and then reowning the crop or paper farming by buying, buying the call option instead of selling it. Now, there are various reasons to say hmm. well, why you might say that's kind of expensive or whatever, but let's forget that for a moment. The motivations are more symmetric on the producer side than on the end user side. The end users m will be buying calls. So what you see if you look at the commitment of traders reports, again, I'll restrict myself to corn, is that producers and end users combined tend to buy a lot of calls. They don't buy as many puts and they tend to be long biased. You can infer that using various um, price-based methods when looking at the options markets. And so what you have is a situation where certain types of calls are overpriced. So if I'm able to build structures around those calls, I can basically supply long exposure. I'm getting fairly technical. I can supply long exposure at much lower carry cost than buying and rolling the futures. So what's overpriced and what's underpriced? Again, for core not only, I'll go into some specifics. I believe that at-the-money options are pretty fairly priced, only a bit overpriced. Somewhat out-of-the-money options tend to be quite rich. And tail protection is actually pretty fair. And the reason tail protection is fair is because real economic hedgers or hedgers who have a real business that they're trying to protect against don't really think about the tail. They don't think about an extreme move. A farmer is not trying to buy a lottery ticket on his crop, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. And a, a food processor isn't trying to buy protection against a mega spike. So really what they're trying to do is just control the volatility of their business and keep running from year to year. So the wings tend to be fairly or perhaps not very overpriced or perhaps even underpriced. It's hard to say because when you deal with limited realizations of mega moves. It's hard to be sure, but I think it's a very different world from the world that Nassim Taleb and others have introduced us to in the stock markets, where everyone is aware of the crash. Everyone knows of the crash of 87, the portfolio insurance problem. People are aware of the flash crash 2010 and various other events. So people are acutely aware of that, but in the ags business, it seems to me that the tail is generally ignored because these people just want to get by and smooth out their return stream over time. Interesting. So you think the tail could be underpriced or might be underpriced? It might be. I mean, the way I've always thought about it, and in the first book I wrote, I always felt the tail was the cost of doing business. You think of it as a fixed cost insurance program for all the other fancy footwork that you might do in between. So, you know, the moral of the story is that Fancy statistical techniques help you 
to characterize things that occur relatively often or that, that occur in the belly of the distribution, but they will never say anything about the extremes because you just don't have enough data to work with. So just hedging that out if it's not egregiously overpriced is attractive. And that's a bit different from what we're seeing perhaps in the stock markets where the zero data expiration things are super popular. They may in indeed have become overpriced because there is so much interest in buying them as lottery tickets. There's so much narrative and people, people who don't have huge cash resources can go in and buy them. Here it's a bit different. And I, I do believe there are real pockets of opportunity in that market. Okay. And so is that that's just on the calls? On the puts? Well, okay, let me make a few comments here. Now, the first comment I want to make is that if I mentioned the details of every market, I'd be giving away a lot of the game. But what I will say is that for corn itself, the calls are more interesting. Call side is more interesting. And the strategy is more consistent with the theme or the, the product I'm trying to deliver, which is a vehicle for getting long exposure to depressed commodities with low carry costs. And so the call side is more interesting mathematically, but it's also more interesting from the standpoint of trying to deliver a solution to clients who wants to participate in large-scale moves in depressed commodities. Okay, got it. <laughs> so that's corn. Well, what else is interesting? You said you didn't want to spend all the time on, on the grains. Uh, well, you're doing work on the oil, natural gas... What's yeah, we've covered we've covered a pretty good range, and I, I I was hoping to come on with three or four different hats. I was going to have a like a mining cap for metals and an energy something or another. The, all of the markets are very different. Uh, they're very different, and for grains, you need to worry about things like seasonality, risk premia baked into uncertainty in the weather, and so on. Metals are a little bit different. I mean, I've, we've done a lot of work on copper. And what you find is that it's a very different market in terms of volatility. It's much less volatile. It may be less volatile because scrap can be recycled and used as a substitute for dwindling supply and so on. But the sorts of trades and structures are very different. And so this is, without saying too much, this has been a large enterprise where I've had to try and slice and dice the performance of very many option strategies to figure out which ones tend to do relatively well in different regimes, and then try and back out the reasons why that might be the case based on structural imbalances and demand. So for copper, it's very different. The put side is more interesting there without giving much detail. And gas, again, without... Natural gas? Natural, natural gas, yeah. yeah. Let's say US, Henry Hub natural gas is actually very much like the VIX. So anything you do with the VIX futures you could think about doing for natural gas. It is a surprising analogy. I mean, I never thought that as someone who was reasonably well known for being a VIX options person would have gone into things like gas, but it's exactly the same problem. And I kind of realized it without realizing it because I knew that natural gas was the rolling futures contract that decayed the most next to the VIX. Meaning try it has more contango. Yeah, it has historically on average, it had the most contango. So it's almost an identical problem. So does that mean being short natural gas is a positive carry position in the same way being short volatility tends to make money? It's just that when it doesn't make money, it loses you everything. Yeah, it's exactly the same. And there are two ways to play it. One is you can just short the front month. A uh, more sensible way to play it is to 
buy a deferred month and sell the front month. So you trade a calendar spread. So a lot of the activity in natural gas is based on analyzing what people do, which tends to be more trading spreads than trading outrights. And so if you go and look at the managed money accounts for grains versus energies, managed money in grains is all trend, or is largely trend followers who pick up on the recent move and just trade the front month futures. Open interest in gas and other markets, related markets, tend to be far more spread-based, even for managed money accounts, which means that trend followers don't dominate to the same extent. And there is a large number of traders who are trying to control their risk by trading spreads or target particular points on the curve, but aren't willing to just take the outright risk of buying or selling that gas for, for exactly the reasons you said. If you just sell the front month, your average return is going to be great, almost guaranteed, but you could get wiped out along the way. So, yes. Are it similar to NACAS of the VIX where when there's a spike, odds are that shorting it is an even better idea, but even more, there's a risk that it, it spikes up again. You know, in yeah. other words, when the VIX goes to 80, or I guess the parallel is when Nat Gas went to whatever it went to yes, or last year. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, in a world where margins were never adjusted and risk limits were never adjusted by your brokers or by your internal risk management systems, the higher it goes, the more you should sell if you have the cash to deploy. The problem is that these limits are breached far more quickly in the most attractive looking times to put the trade on. So you not only have to be aware of what the likely outcome is over some reasonable horizon, but you also have to be aware of how the rug could be pulled out from under you for a relatively small move if you try to do too much. So these are the sorts of trades that if you do a little bit relative to your book, you can add a loss, but you can't get greedy. And the whole business of short vol, this, that, and the other, I'm not in the camp that that's all a horrible business, but to run it as a standalone is very hard. It's much better to, to run it on the back of a big balance sheet where you do some of it at the margin, but you're not exposing yourself to getting carried out if things go against you. So I, these are great trades, but you, you have a real limit as to how much you can do. Um, um, you know, it's the, uh, We were talking about this today internally, but having a guardrail for a strategy like this is essential because there is a lot of risk premium baked in, but you need to know what to do if things start going outside of the bounds of what you've seen in the recent past. Today's interview is brought to you by Public. You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why Public took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com slash forward guidance to get started and let them know I sent you. That's public.com slash forward guidance. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com slash bonds. What are some other things that you learned that you didn't know before you did this deep dive? Oh, seasonality was something I had just brushed under the under the rug, basically. I considered it to be something that was almost unmodelable because, you know, if you start looking at seasonality, then you have to discrete or you have to bucket time, let's say within a calendar year, into different pieces, which already introduces some arbitrariness. You know, what 
constitutes a month what and so on and so forth so we had to find a lot of ways to get around that where we weren't imposing more structure than the seasonality requires and that was a big thing that i learned i also learned a lot about how certain contracts are particularly important in certain markets and i had thought you know you just the front month is the front month mm. but you know there's certain months where harvests that immediately follow a harvest there are other months where supply can only come from the bin there's no new harvest coming soon and so there's a great variability and volatility in the shape of the futures term structure in the opportunity set from one month to another and that was something that i was kind of blissfully ignorant of before i got into this um i mean the the i've i've said a lot of detailed things but the end the the sort of back of the envelope comment i wanted to make is that there are some very interesting ways to deliver exposure to commodities in an environment where if you believe that certain ones are depressed and you don't believe that a recession however likely that may or may not be will absolutely crush these things then i think what we have come up with is something very attractive in terms of allowing investors to gain exposure to commodities in the real markets not in the stock markets in the real commodity markets without having to time the trade that and that's really the point that i'm trying to make here that i do believe there is underinvestment not underinvestment necessarily only from uh, producers but also underinvestment in the community of people who allocate capital to various asset classes there's underinvestment in commodities but rightfully so i mean there are lots of fears that you can you don't know what's going to happen you can have unpredictable return streams you can have tail events and so on and so forth so what i'm trying to do is come up with a method for reducing a lot of those concerns reducing the carry cost timing issue to a large extent in the way that a real producer would you know a farmer doesn't pay any more to keep corn in the bin when pro- the price is low in fact they pay less and i'm trying to do the same sort of thing Just to keep so allocators can have a constant long position without <laughs> constantly bleeding and paying that negative carry yeah that's the point yeah and you know i'm trying to do at, at a more humble level what the mega grain companies the mega energy companies already do but the average investor doesn't have access to the pnl on their trading desk all they have access to is some mega conglomerate equity start type return and that's a very different beast from w- what they're able to produce internally for themselves okay so so hari so i'm you know i have a high degree of confidence that whatever you're going to do this these strategies will crush being i'm not going to name the etf but like being long commodities and you know you you own the January contract and that it's January, so you roll to the February, that paying the bleed every month, I have a high confidence of that. But in terms of the stocks, you said, oh, stocks are just, they have that commodity exposure with the the beta. I mean, isn't it, I'm sure that's, that's you know, historically true during most periods, but like, I think in 2020, XLE, for example, the energy ETF had a negative, or at least a negative correlation. Like when XLE, when oil rallied, that was not a time to own the S&P and vice versa. So you know, because, because when there's inflation, stocks don't do well, typically. So can you, just, can you expand your thinking on that a little bit more about why you should be, need to be along the underlying as opposed to the, the companies? For example, like if, com- you know, if the price of natural gas spikes, you might want to own the companies because they're going to make a lot of, they're going to produce a lot of natural gas and sell it. And then the price will go down. Yeah, it's not, an, it's not so much an or, it's kind of an and. Yeah, okay. 
I think you want to do both. I'm, I'm trying to provide cleaner exposure, but obviously companies know more about the uh, ins and outs of their businesses than I ever will. So my goal is to provide, basically I'm not competing against, but I'm going up with the trend followers, the relative value arbitrageurs in the commodity spaces and so on from the following perspective. They might generate more alpha than the stuff I'm presenting today. But what I'm presenting is something that provides a far more predictable, long, long biased return than what they will get elsewhere. So if you invest in the mega hedge funds who can be wildly successful, who will remain nameless, they will be trading spreads. They won't be necessarily long at all. They could be short. You just have to trust that they're going to deliver or identify enough edge in those spreads to make some money. Uh, similarly, a trend follower for a depressed commodity is more than likely to be short, both because of curve effects and because the commodity had to go down to get to that depressed level it's at today. So that idea of going long is great. I mean, you can have two perspectives. One is commodities have alpha in them. Sure, that's fine. That's not the angle I'm taking exactly. I'm saying there are good reasons to be long, especially when the stuff is cheap because you get the convexity for free if you can manage the bleed. And that's something that I haven't seen offered in the marketplace. I'm sure some viewers will know more than I do about what's out there, but it's gotten me very excited to talk about it. And for me, who was someone who's always been long volatility, having a diversifying strategy that uses roughly the same tool set is amazing. Yeah, you're, you're like, the tails are finally you know somewhat cheap some of the time, unlike in equity world where most of the time details are like the tails are priced as if everyone is listening to Nassim Taleb because they are. Yeah. I, I will not say, I, I agree with that uh, to a large degree. I won't say that they're expensive. I just think they are unpriceable, but there's certainly more people who have an interest in buying those tails. That is without question. Yeah. More uh, competition. So. Okay. So that's, we've done a you know, brief, but somewhat thorough tour of the options world. Not that thorough, but now let's I'll talk about why you think, there could be a bull market in commodities. Now let's put on our macro hats. You can keep your, your John Deere hat on and say, why do you think the next decade, next few decades might be a good time to be long commodities? Well, I, I touch upon a few. Weather volatility does seem to be increasing. And a lot of work has been done on what's going on in Brazil, in the Amazon rainforest, the percentage of the rainforest that has been used for row crops, the impact on weather patterns in the region. A lot of work has been done on that. And it, it's one of those things where I'm not going to come to you and say, I'm a climatologist and the, weather, the world is getting warmer, therefore X, Y, and Z will happen. Rather, I'm saying that even if volatility increases, but temperatures stay about the same, that's bad for crops as a rule. Mm -hmm. So short-term freezes, say for orange juice or dry periods, that are unexpected, even if the average moisture levels are fairly similar to the past, can be very damaging for crop yields. And the only reason that yields have seemed to have been so high, and again, I'm stepping a little bit outside of the research I've been doing very in a very detailed way, is that a lot of fertilizer has been put in the ground in a lot of places to get the yields up, to keep the yields up. And that's energy intensive as well. So you wind up with this world where the commodities are somehow more connected than one would have thought. And spikes in one area will lead to spikes in other areas. So it's not only that 
these are individual commodities where you might win the lottery if you buy upside in any in a bunch of them. It's more that they're interconnected. Yep, and a spike in natural gas causes a spike in fertilizer prices, which causes a spike in grain. You know, and it could these things could feed. So up. grain yields go down presumably, yeah. or it becomes more expensive to farm. One spike can lead to other spikes, undoubtedly. And so I want to be there for the spikes, but I don't want to take the downside. And I think the only way to avoid that is by buying stuff on the cheap, where there's a fundamental driver to go long. So weather is increasingly volatile, whether it's hot or cold. So that's one reason. What's this, what are other reasons? Demographics. I'm, I, it's not really related to me directly, but in China, I think meat consumption has gone up quite a bit. Meat consumption requires a lot of meal, you know, soy meal and so on, a lot more grain consumption. And if the demographics continue, if people continue to move in that direction, prices will go up because demand will go up quite substantially. And as I also mentioned geopolitics, and I think geopolitics, it's harder for me to forecast this. I think people who try and use geopolitics to invest often have a hard time in spite of their, in many cases, their great intelligence and great contacts and research. But you know, if there is a trend toward countries wishing to be independent of other perhaps less friendly area countries or regions in terms of where they get their energy from and so on, it will require a lot of infrastructure building. And it will also lead to less fluidity, for lack of a better phrase, of in the movement of goods across the globe. So it will lead to price sort of localized price spikes. And that would be impactful too in terms of prices having a potential for a right tail event. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, well, that's my that's my story for the day. I'm sure it will evolve over time, but it, it's it's something that perhaps was one of the more remarkable things that's happened in my career. That I started in a field entirely different, and I saw that the same techniques were broadly applicable. And it seems to be quite a successful start to a project, both in real real terms and in the modeling. So although you did come on originally way back, way, way, way back in the day, trading weather derivatives. Is that correct? Trading is a strong word. I worked at the Earth Institute at Columbia University, and uh, I was a lowly postdoc there Mm -hmm. and I needed a job. So there was a group in Chicago that was trading, making markets in weather derivatives. And since I knew a little bit about dynamical systems modeling for the atmosphere and so on. They had me go and vet a weather modeling system at the time. And I was overly ambitious, as most people who are fresh out of university are, thinking that we could crack the nuts and actually predict the weather in different areas. But that turned out to be a challenge. Nonetheless, it's something that I feel great coming back to. What's harder? I know both are basically impossible. But what's harder, predicting the weather or predicting the, like the stock market or some other, you know, pre- any other prediction market, political market? And also, has there kind of, you know, clearly, I think, you know, in, 19, in the 1990, humanity was better at predicting the weather than 1890. Like there is progress, but is there kind of an asymptotic thing where, okay, we're really not going, you know, however good our computers are and however smart our scientists are, and we're advancing the corpus of knowledge, there really is, you know, it's impossible to know whether it's going to rain in two weeks. Yeah, well, the weather is far more predictable than the stock market. It's just that there's a sharp decay once you go past nine days or so. Yeah. Now there are promising signs that this can be extended to two weeks through some triangulation of efforts for across localized models. 
that sounds pretty fancy, but basically if you can get one model to communicate its output to another in a way that's somewhat controlled, you get longer horizon forecasts. I guess actually it's kind of the opposite of the stock market where you know, you're reasonably confident that in 30 years, the stock market will be higher than it is now. I mean, you could maybe say very confident, but you never know. But you could in, say we- in weather, I, say that, yeah, yeah, in, I know what you're saying though. There yeah, is a risk weather, premium. You have confidence about the next seven days, but the next 30 years, you have no idea. Whereas yeah, well, it's seven a, days for the stock market, no one has any idea, you know? Well, this is kind of, before I get too philosophical, this is a kind of a debate between deterministic, but very complicated models because the interactions are so complex. And models where humans are meddling with them in a very direct way. So there's that changes the dynamics. So in the stock market, humans adjust to patterns, either effectively or ineffectively, but they make some adjustment and that changes the patterns. Now it is true that maybe human activity changes certain components of the weather. There's no question that that's true, but it's far less direct. So a human system or a social system is far harder to model because humans will react yeah. to what they see, thereby changing the way that the system works. No one, have, no one has to cover, you know, they shorted the rain and now they have to cover because there's a hurricane. Exactly, exactly. So the feedback loop is a little less, is far less significant. Okay, so I mean, how much time are you saving for the traditional volatility S&P 500 VIX world? Or are you, you, are you strictly a farmer now? Um, I'm a farmer, a part-time farmer at best. I probably do two hours of this, but I have a business to run too. Okay. So, so your I, full-time job, you're still, you're still. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Got it. Okay. I mean, I, I said this before in other interviews, but you know, I do, I like to do research because it will creep into my business over six to 12 month horizons. So if there, if there's client demand for something that's similar, where I can see the connection between what I do do and how I could apply it, then I'll spread my tentacles out and try and do that too. But there is a limit. I mean, I'm still a vol guy first and foremost. It just feels great to refresh myself and reinvigorate my career with some new things. I don't, I'm not the sort of person who wants to come on every week and say something topical about the markets. I, that's great too. I much prefer going into my rabbit hole and then coming out with something new. Well, so. you've, you've come out and you've shared from your rabbit hole that being said, I mean, what do you what do you think about the market these days? Either the underlying stock market, which as I don't know if you notice, is going up, and the volatility Every market, day. which as you know, as happens when the stock market goes up, volatility is is low. Realized and implied, maybe. Well, I I don't go on as a pundit, but what I will say is that I'm very surprised that the market is where that the S and P, if the S and P is the market, is where it's at given where interest rates are at. And if I recall last year, I was going on various shows saying, I'm quite surprised that so much Fed cutting is baked into the Fed funds futures curve. And as it turned out, there wasn't any cutting, really. Mm-hmm. There was jawboning, but no cutting. And now I'm surprised that this has persisted in such a way that people think, or people is a strong word, but some aggregation of investors thinks that we will have a wonderfully soft landing. This all surprises me. But what can I say? I think one of the more surprising instances for me, and I think it's largely to do with market with market dynamics nowadays, is usually when you get a rally as strong as the one we've had since October the 27th, as uninterrupted and strong seven up weeks for the S&P in a row, a high preponderance of consecutive up days, unusual streaking. 
corresponding with a also extreme rally in the bond market. Yes, well, that's true. That's a confirmation to some degree. Yes, fair enough. But you usually will only see that sort of severe rally after a big sell-off. And we did not have a big sell-off going into them, into October 27th. We had a garden variety sell-off. The market had gone from being up 22%, but I'm making up numbers, to being up maybe 11 or so, something like that. So the peak to trough drawdown may have been 10%. Nothing major. It took a long time to unfold. And the rally following that is surprisingly steep. So it kind of violates the asymmetry of of rallies versus declines. It's a one-off experiment, but I find that very surprising. How have you observed the fall in volatility, which you know, as stocks grind higher, or even as they explode higher, volatility goes down. You know, there's a negative correlation between the VIX and the S and P 500. Anything about you know, is it is it is the VIX lower or higher than you might have thought, given I guess VIX is implied volatility relative to the realized volatility? Like, obviously, okay, the VIX is at 20, and you know. Some of uh, someone, you know, me from the future t- is telling me that stocks are going to rally over the next month. The VIX obviously is going to be lower than 20, but is it going to be 18, 15, 12? I mean, it's 12 now. Is that how does that sort of factor in your thing? What are your thoughts? I have a few thoughts, but they're kind of statistical anecdotes. One of them sure. is that if you have a large number of up days in a row, vol will be lower than if you had made the same move in a choppy market as a rule. So the streaking is fairly important. Also, there haven't been that many really big updates. I think there was a 1.3 or 1.4% update a week ago, and there were a few other 1% plus days. But it was more the just the sheer persistence of the updates that's caused this aggregate move. And that would tend to suggest lower vol, assuming that you know the, delta, the realized vol is a major input in implied, which it typically is. Although at this low level of vol, of implied vol, and realize, well, the linkage tends to break down a bit. You know, there could be no move in the market for the next three weeks. Not that it would happen. You could spray the market with some freezing device so that it didn't move. And I don't think the VIX would go below five. At some point, the spread is going to be there. But again, I mean, dynamically, I can understand why the VIX is where it's at. I, I wouldn't contradict that. What I can't understand too well is the dynamics leading to such persistent upside gains. Yes. And I should say, like, I think I'm just looking at the S&P 500 roll, 30-day rolling volatility, and it's around 9%. So, you know, implied volatility should and often does trade at a premium to to what it's actually. So it's volatility is actually 9, but the market's pricing in 12. Is that is that roughly, you know, in the median distribution, or is it something seem way out of line? Okay, well, that's another quantity question. You can look at implied versus realized in two ways. One is just spread, implied minus realized. And you could also look at it as implied uh, as a percentage of realized, let's say. With, the, with realized this low, I wouldn't say this is that unusual. There have been other times when the VIX traded at 12, 13, and realized was below 10. So percentage terms here would be less meaningful than just mm-hmm. raw difference. This is pretty high, but it's not not outrageous, um, uh, but it makes it both easier and harder for me to be a hedger. It's easier because if I have a thick skin and just go out and warehouse options of various maturities, which I won't go into, but exactly, but I can just forget about it and see what happens in the markets, just have a reloading strategy and forget about it. But it's harder in the sense that 
there are not many relative value trades to be done. And the last kind of relative value trade I would ever do would be a calendar spread as a hedger, where I say, sell one year out puts on the S&P and then buy one month and try and roll them because the vega in that long stuff, which is going to be sentiment driven, is uncontrollable in a calendar spread like that. So you have to be very careful to do such things. So in that sense, there are not many spreads that are easy to do. Having said that, it's a great time to be warehousing insurance if you have other sources of return in your portfolio. And is it fair to say that the VIX futures curve is quite upward sloping, you know, given that you know, four volatilities at like 818. And mm-hmm. that observation would incline one or would suggest- That's why I made the comment. The yes, disaster exactly. trade that you just said about shorting the long dated and buying the stuff. But so if, if you're buying, let's say, if one were to buy like a, the VIX at the 18, whenever it is 18 in the future, or a call option on that contract, how do you think about it as like, oh my God, I'm paying so much relative to 12? Or do you think about it as- I mean, look, on a historical basis, 18 is somewhat cheap, maybe, and it's protection. So you got to buy what you know, buy when you can, not when you must. Well, I, again, I'll give you the quantity answer, which is that as I've done with the grains and with, with metals and so on, I've mapped out the performance of various strategies over time. And that's something I've been doing for many years. And, but I've also conditioned them on the state of the world. So there are strategies that are best in absolute terms, but also strategies that are best when the term structure is steep and front month fall is low. There are other strategies that are best when the skew is steep. So at least in those two dimensions of those two variables, I've kind of mapped out that stuff. And it is uh, based on what I've found, buying the 18 vol is not too bad. The danger is that 18 vol with say six months to maturity will very quickly become a four months to maturity. 15 vol put as time goes by, if nothing happens and you're, you slide down the forward curve. So when you buy something that's further out, you're not, on, you, you're not only paying more, but you're going to slide down the forward curve if nothing happens. So if you buy a straddle at six months out, every day that goes by, you are now pegging off a shorter time to maturity on the curve. That makes sense. And so I guess one thing you said is, the disaster trade. What are some other disaster trades that like historically have been disaster trades when front month volatility is low and it's an upward terming upward terming term structure? Oh, again, selling back month forwards on vol or on variant swaps and buying the front month can be very dangerous because if you don't manage the roll correctly, you can wind up with some very awkward positions. If something happens shortly before the roll, you better be careful. And if you don't, wait long enough if you're rolling too early there's not enough juice in the trade so if i traded six month variance versus five month variance or five six month vix versus five month vix there's nothing in the trade really it's just going to be kind of liquidity driven maybe some large institution or player wants to hedge one month rather than the other and i lose the edge Whereas if I try and do six versus one and one is about to roll off and something happens, well, actually that would be okay for this trade, sorry, because I'm buying one and selling six. But if nothing happens and the roll hits and I'm having to reload, that could be a serious issue. So you get these roll issues. I, I kind of had it the wrong way around, but I hope, hope the audience understands. Interesting. So, okay. What else is interesting in the volatility world at this space? Well, vol, in the vol world, the differential between rates vol and equity vol is a constant source of puzzle to me because 
I was always schooled in the in the I always had the school of thought that rates lead equity markets and if rates fall picks up, equity vol should pick up. Now equity vol has moved around a bit this year. It was over twenty quite recently in October. But another interesting trade that is also fraught with dangerous selling rates vol to buy equity vol. That's another kind of so if now that we go down this slippery slope of relative value opportunities, that is obviously a trade that would be attractive on a statistical basis. Yeah. But again, very hard to manage. Very, very hard to manage. But okay, so we there's nothing guaranteed, but the Fed is not, like pretty much signaled that they are not going to cut. They're, they're keeping it on the table. But I mean, if, it, it, if, it, if they do hike, it's one more 25 basis points. And where do you get killed if you short rate vol right now? On, on the upside, you know, rates could go up more or they go, go down more. Because I mean, we got 118 on the move index. I'm not going to pretend that that means anything and see like, oh my God, 118, so high. But I look, oh, it was at the same level six months ago. I, in terms of where the path is, I, I think there was a lot more possibility six months ago than there is now. Recession is the more likely scenario in my head, but I'm, I haven't been thinking very hard about this problem. But I think a more severe recession than people expect is a potential reason for this. I'm a, a casual but sincere fan of Jeff Snyder, who looks at um, you know the ten years kind of the barometer of the demand for liquidity in the rehypothecation markets and in the global lending markets. And so one could argue that that going down and also going back to my friendly commodity markets, commodities being depressed almost is inconsistent with the idea that we'll have a nice soft landing. So it's all you could always spin this two ways. Okay, L- lower bond yields and lower commodities are subjectively like stimulative to the economy. I mean, not objectively, mm-hmm. but arguably similar to the economy. However, they themselves are the results of a maybe weakening economy. They go down. Those things happen when the economy is headed to recession. It's the opposite of when interest rates go up, those are contractionary. But often the reason the interest rates went up is because the economy is booming or there's inflation or both, as there was in the case of 2022. So it's, you know, just depending what your angle is, if you, you want to say there's a recession or if you want to say there's a soft landing, you could always, you know, have a reason for it in the, in the market. Yeah, the sequencing is a real issue for me too, because I, I again, I always thought that rates move first, currencies adjust, let's say too, and then equity indices, then commodities. So if rates go down, equities start rallying eventually with a lag, then commodities start going up. And then they go up to an unsustainable level where rates start going up again, and then equities go down, and then commodities take the hit because the cost of funding goes up and so on and so forth. That was kind of a classical paradigm that I used. And I had a uh, statistical method for looking at the predictability of the ordering of events. And it's completely broken down, frankly. It's hard to know what the leader and the lacquer is. Yeah, I mean, as a young person in the market whose you know, direct observation of the market, like living through it, has, has been you know small sample size for me, definitely. Like this... Over the, over the time that I've been observing the, the market, the bond market is smart, has not been true at all. Like it may have been true in the past before I was, and I'm, you know, looking at it, the historical data, sure. But I mean, the stock market definitely has been way, you know, from 2019 to the current, the stock market has been way more of a forward-looking indicator than the bond market, I would say. And again, pre-2019, that cl- claim about the bond market being smart may, may very well be true. 
But I mean, I don't know with in 2021, when the 10-year is at like one and a half percent and forward nominal GDP over the next three years was like 10%. I mean, what what's, what genius was the 10-year smoking? You know, I mean, what genius, what, yeah. what, how, in what way was the 10-year yeah. genius? I, I think, I, I think this I, is I a great, F. Yeah, this is a great point. I, I, I'll try and hypothesize on the fly, yeah, here, which is that if I'm not mistaken, one of the leading economic indicator inputs is the S&P return. And one of them is the 10 minus two yield curve spread. Now, if the 10 minus two yield curve spread is stuck, because 10 isn't moving and two is stuck, then that ceases to be an indicator of anything. And so the S&P then becomes the more significant market price-based input to a leading indicator. And so it may be the just the stagnancy of rates over the past however many years has made the yield curve a bit less significant in determining investor sentiment and perhaps even policy to the extent that the leading economic indicator is used. And I think maybe that your background or the timing of your background is suggestive of the fact that rates have been singularly uninteresting until fairly recently, thereby losing their significance at some level as indicators of uh, economic activity or sentiment. Yes. Okay. So I, I don't know the like LEI leading economic indicators that you're referring to, but if it, like the Goldman Sachs Financial Condition Index, I, a lot of it is credit spreads and nominal bond yields and maybe real rates and then some stock market too. But I, I don't think that the yield curve shape is a large input into the Goldman Sachs Financial. It, it, it maybe the two percent. I don't know. But uh, yeah, what, what do you think about the this whole inverted yield curve? I mean. But the present case notwithstanding, the yield curve, inverted yield curve has a good track record. For predicting uh, recessions. For course. predicting recessions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the old joke about, oh, that economist, he predicted 12 of the past five recessions. There was a time I thought that that sort of, you know, not that funny joke was said about the yield curve. But actually, I mean, there there's never been a false signal, but it very well could be a false signal now. And also statistically, like six out of six, to me, as an amateur, that sounds like a good track record. But as you, a quantitative person who you know, has higher standards, I mean, is that enough sample sizes? Just because, you know, what's the I, I sometimes have higher standards. Uh, <laughs> six out of six is nothing in itself, perhaps, because it doesn't tell you the exact timing of the recession. And even the recession is an ar- a somewhat artificial, artificially constru- designed construction or an artificial construction. But what I would say is that the fact that yield curve inversions have typically led reasonable regularity to recessions, and there's a good reason why they should do so, is significant. I mean, the whole banking model is broken. The classical banking model is broken with an inverted curve. Banks should make money by rolling over financing at the short race and lending at longer rates. Yes. That's broken. The engine is broken. Biggest bank lending ever. How do you spur that? And okay, but then I'll introduce a complexity and critique what I just said, which is true. But that Mm -hmm. model of bank lending is somewhat of an antiquated version of like, literally, you go to the bank, they make you a mortgage, or they make you a bank loan, it does not include securities. And in 2020 and 2021, it does not appear like there was a lot of bank lending, quote unquote. But that's because everyone was stuffed with to the gills with real money, or securities. And you know, Amazon was issuing 40 year paper at 20 basis points over treasuries. And that doesn't go into bank lending. So there was this huge bond bubble 
that then transferred into a credit bubble, but it's only the credit bubble that appears on you know, Fred.com. I totally agree with your argument. But what I would say is this, if you're going to throw the six for six recession stat at me, I have to be vigilant about what the banking system was in the first four instances of the six, to six, six for six. So what I'm speaking of may be antiquated, you're right. But I'm trying to look over the whole period and, and see if there's a good reason why that did occur. And so I'm kind of putting a an somewhat inaccurate in the present time, but relatively accurate in the past, um, trying to supply such a reason for why this this may be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're you remain in the recession camp. I do, but 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 I'm even though I do think about these things, I think I'm not the best guest to have on because I'm fully aware of my biases. I am. What are your biases? I'm, well, I run short bias programs, long vol, yeah, yeah, okay, for outsized returns and so on. That's my job. That's, that's what sustains me thinking about things that could go wrong. So obviously I'd be in the recession camp or in the uncontrolled inflation camp, but my day-to-day task is not to get it right, to get to hit the jackpot correctly, but yeah. to manage the path from today to either outcome in a reasonably controlled way. But it's good that you're aware of, you know, you're in the earthquake business. And so Sadly, if, you think, yeah. if you think there's an earthquake, maybe sometimes you should listen to that. But sometimes, oh, okay, I have a, I'm inclined to think that way because of, of what I do. That, I think that's, that's fair. That's, I actually, I think that actually makes a good guess as opposed to a guest who has biases but isn't aware of them. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely, I mean, the, the, you know, the, when I used to study some applied math and physics, we never had a problem like go out and try and unite quantum physics and general relativity. It's too hard a problem. In the same way, trying to predict what the stock market's going to do is it's obviously not on the same scale of importance or complexity, but why start with the hardest problem? Most of us have real things that we believe we have edges in, and we try and mine those again and again and again instead of trying to hit the really hard problems. But having said that, these are the problems that people are concerned about and the problems that it's worth thinking about on a bigger scale just to orient oneself. And so uh, my day-to-day task, which requires a lot more time, is far more specific and far more engineered, but these are great questions. So but going back to my previous question of in what way, you know, going out there and shorting equity vol, in what way could you get destroyed doing that? Okay, the Fed cuts rates to zero, obviously. But... What else? Like, what else are walk me through how that trade could be a disaster? Because to me, I'm having a hard time sa- mm-hmm. saying rates go to zero. Am I saying would I write it a hundred to one? Of, of course not. I wouldn't. But would I write like a four to one odds? Over it's the all. Next it, years? It's all. Maybe it's, I don't know. It's all reflexivity though, because the more that uh, any given trade becomes a one way trade, the more money is in the trade, the more leverage is being applied to the trade. Explain More that. Confident. I don't understand that really. Explain that. Well, why do there are many reasons why markets trend, or especially commodity markets, let's say, or rates. Forget about equity indices for a moment. But one of them is purely the nature of leverage. So if I went and I bought a corn futures contract, go um, on. Yeah, <laughs> random example, right? Yeah. And I, I make I, I have to post some initial margin. The market goes in my favor. I now have some excess cash in the account on a mark-to-market basis. So in principle, I could do more. If I made enough on the one, I can actually buy another one. 
and I don't have to put any new cash in to support the position. And so as the market's going up, as a trend follower, which is often the case for managed money accounts in commodities, also in rates, I can add to my positions. But the more positions I have on, or the more contracts I have on, the smaller the adverse move needs to be for me to take a big loss because I'm running all of this on margin. So a 10% down move when I have one contract in means less than a 10% down move when I have 100 contracts or 1,000 contracts in. And so herding in markets that use leverage as a source of exposure or margin as a source of exposure are almost intrinsically vulnerable to random shocks. So that once the random shock occurs, there's a cascade effect where people sequentially have to get out. And then the trend changes its direction and other people pile in to the new trend. Vol volatility goes up, so risk limits are hit even for people who don't trade trend. They just have to cut their position. And so if you look at the sequencing effect of a random shock, a fixed-sized random shock, it's um, uh, it can lead to moves far larger than one thought could have occurred. In the first book I wrote, The Second Leg Down, I said that, you know, you might sit around saying a 30% drawdown in the S&P is not possible. It's highly unlikely in the next six months. But if the market should go down 10, everyone's going to be increasingly aware of the possibility of it's going down another 20, and adjustments will be made, potentially leading it to go down further. I think we may have avoided quite a severe drawdown at the end of October. The signs seem to be somewhat in place, but you know we only see one realization of it. All of that made sense to me. We but go back to your earlier point about reflexivity and it being a one-way trade, and how that, why you said that after I, I made my point about writing. You know, I guess it would be a call contract, writing a call that you know, Fed funds one hundred rates zero. In in two thousand and eight, I remember people going out and. and saying exactly that, you know, T-bills are close to zero. It was shocking. I want to go in and short that yield as hard as I can because it's never going to breach zero. That would not have been an advisable trade. No, it wouldn't. Um, and that's simply because it's what seemed inconceivable started to look possible, causing people to make adjustments or being forced to make adjustments, which furthered the move in that direction, making it even more possible and finally the said event occurred. So for, I would never try and collect income on the reflexive, at the end of a reflexive change of, chain of events. Yeah, oh, I see what you're saying. Like it definitely is more likely that that interest rates go to 0% of the terminal value or the zero to 0 0.25, then 0 0.25 to 0 0.50. Like why would the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to just above zero. I mean, may, maybe they would, but to me, it seems like if they're going to go that low, just it's going to be a crisis and they're going to go to zero. Yeah. I mean, there are good reasons for having some interest rate. It yeah. That's great. Different incentives, you know, in the same way that they can muck around with the rate that they pay on reserves and the rate that they lend at. It, it's, it's, I'm not a massive Fed skeptic. I'm kind of in between. I'm a cynic, but not a massive skeptic. What do you mean a skeptic? Like, I think, okay, you're a skeptic. The, the Fed does nothing other than make okay. people feel sanguine about what the, what the outcome, the range of outcomes might be. I, I do believe that they can adjust incentives somewhat through all of these things, but maybe they only have importance at the margin. I'm trying not to get too emotional about it, which is good for my health.
yes but um uh so yeah there are but but in answer to your question there are potentially some reasons why they wouldn't go exactly to zero yeah because maybe they would think that there is it's more uh, attractive at some level to offer some minimal level of interest that's that's true and i know the move index is some combination of the two-year the five year 10 year 20 all all around the curve and we're Mm -hmm. only talking about the short end but do you see any i know most of the time when you talk about vol you're you're focusing on opportunities in stock market namely s p 500 vix that sort of world various swaps again on stocks do you take any look at opportunities okay so like i i Obviously, you know, not obviously, but I track rates very closely, pretty much, you know, every day. But I don't track rate vol in terms of the rate vol on the two year. The rate vol on the oh no, two year is two year vol is is sixty. Ten year vol is forty. What is you know? I would take a guess. Volatility is higher in the long end of the curve because people still think there could be a sell off. And, uh, you know, term premium widen. Well, price that. volatility is mathematically higher at the long end of the curve because the dollar value of a basis yeah, point yeah, is much yeah. higher. Yes. I was. So, I guess yeah, I was saying like, just just the uh, but one should be careful here because um, the 10-year has a significance as being the most liquid security, whereas the short end of the, cur- of the curve has other significance. So if, the, if we have a crisis that is predominantly a credit crisis, and again, I don't have any of these positions on, nor am I recommending them. That's my big disclaimer. If, if it turns out to be a credit crisis, I would intuitively prefer to be long tenure vol. Why? And because that's going to be the security most in demand, right? If you think about it, if you're going to post a security as collateral for a loan, your counterparty isn't only concerned about the riskiness of the security, but also about how quickly they can sell it off. And if the tenure is more liquid than some random two-year notes, the tenure is actually more attractive because even if it's riskier in duration terms, it's easier to, to sell. Interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I knew the tenure was super liquid. I didn't know the two-year was less liquid than the tenure. I mean, maybe if you, if you told me that- That's the, a generalization. I'm making, you told me that the tenure is- here, uh, futures have more volume than the two-year futures. Like I, I maybe wouldn't have been shocked, but I, I would assume that- the less volatile stuff is more liquid by definition. Like a three-month treasury bill, of course, that's going to be more, you know, you can because it's basically money. It's basically just, tra- it's what's the three-month rate? Boom, transaction done. And I understand it's the same with the 10-year, but there's more risk, right? Because there's more duration. It's a kind of an off-the-cuff comment, but I do believe that historically, the 10-year has been more liquid in tandem with the 10-year futures being more liquid. Interesting. And it's also, it's like liquid relative to what? Like if you're... If you're a true whale, you know, nothing's liquid enough. Whereas if you're small enough, most things are liquid enough for you. Yeah, but here we're talking about what the whale might do and its impact on my position. Okay. Rather than the fact that I'm a Uh, whale or not a whale. Okay, okay. And this is something I've tried to highlight over over the years, and I got confused by it too. So it's What's the whale going to buy? Yeah, that makes sense. If the whale liquidates, even if you have a tiny position on, you'll still feel it. Interesting. Well, Hari, thanks so much for for doing this. And I like the conversation. Our first half was, you know, about farming and commodities. And I like the the second half. We we went into more diverse range. So people can follow you on Twitter X at Hari P Krishnan two. You know, don't don't talk to Hari Krish, P Krishnan one. He's dying. Um, you know what happened with that? Very quickly. What what? I mucked up my first account, so I had to delete it. 
And so then I had, I didn't have many options. So I just stuck it two at the end. So fair, fair, but no, I, I like it. And then to do you have a web, obviously people should check out your two books that you've written. We'll include links to that in the description. Do you have a, a website people can go to find out more? No, I, no. I do not. That may be, and that is in the works, but nothing now. No. Got it. Well, Hari, thanks so much for joining. Happy holidays. And thanks everyone for watching. Likewise, all the best. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Show today's sponsor, Public, some love by going to public.com slash forward guidance. And I want to let you know that if you're watching this on YouTube, that forward guidance is available on all podcast apps. In addition, there are two new changes. I regularly post the entire video interview on Twitter, as well as Spotify now has the video version. So you can watch the interview uh, visually and see all of the charts, which sometimes it's hard to you know, follow what's going along if you don't see the charts. YouTube had that advantage. Now it's no longer just YouTube that has that Spotify as well, as well as Twitter. All right. Uh, thanks again for watching.